Today's intro clip is from Bloomberg on April 5th, 2013. The price was about $150. Is this this legitimate in your view? It is legitimate and it is a fascinating experiment in what it could be a brand new currency, one that knows no borders, knows no boundaries, and in many cases knows no rules. So I think it's a really fascinating case of what's happening to our society globally. Talk about the kind of attention that it's getting right now, especially from your clients. Yep. It is getting a lot of attention. People are fascinated by anything that makes new highs every day for weeks on end, which Bitcoin has done. And so that draws a lot of attention. And then people are Hedge funds, individual investors. All of the above. Private investors, private capital, venture capital is very interested in this trend. So you're seeing a lot of interest across the board. So what do you tell them? You tell them to buy it? I tell them that it is certainly a valuable part of a diversified portfolio. To me, it seems like gold for nerds. You know, we had gold for many, many thousands of years as the relevant reserve currency. Bitcoin seems like it wants to step into that role for the online world. So I think it's valuable in that respect. It's also potentially valuable as a method of transaction across borders because it's extremely efficient. And that really is the next level of the story for Bitcoin. But look at what's happened just in the last 48 hours here. Vulnerable to hacking. That crushed the price. It went from 140 to 100. That's right. What's interesting is that the central nervous system of Bitcoin, the process of creating new Bitcoins and holding transactions is very secure. But the individual wallets and exchanges are still very susceptible to the kind of denial of service attacks and hack attacks that you talk about. Well, talk about it. So this is the currency block of lunch money. Why is this a viable alternative to a hard currency that's backed by central bank, by governments, regulated? and in circulation. Yep, the bottom line is that Bitcoin resonates the same reason gold resonates, because nobody controls the supply aside from an algorithm that only issues 25 new Bitcoins every 10 minutes, and that'll decrease over time. So it's standardized and it's commoditized to a point where there's very limited supply. Anytime you get incremental demand, there's a positive story for the currency. One question that I get a lot on Bitcoin is, what's the difference between Bitcoin and PayPal? PayPal is denominated in currency, such as dollars. Bitcoin is its own currency. So the transfer process looks similar, but PayPal is in dollars, Bitcoin is in Bitcoin. So how do you get it? You get it by going through any one of a number of local providers called wallets. And you can link up your bank account to purchase Bitcoin. Your purchase transaction goes through an exchange, and then you receive your Bitcoins in three or four days. So why are you telling people? I understand the idea that a diversified portfolio, but you can diversify with a lot of things that aren't virtual. Yes. You know, as we move into a 21st century world, a technology-based world, it makes sense that something like Bitcoin will eventually be very successful. Is it Bitcoin? No one has any idea. But you certainly pays to be exposed to it early on. What do you think of the Bitcoin bubble stories? Cover the Financial Times yesterday. Yeah, you know, bubble's an easy term to throw around. Well, if you've seen the price, it's a moonshot. It is absolutely a moonshot. The question really you have to ask about Bitcoin is, is it going to move beyond just being this kind of freak show reserve currency story of the online world to being a real, viable, long-term transactional currency? And you say yes. I say it's very possible. But we're still in freak show mode. We're still in freak show mode. Welcome to Noted Podcast, episode 0.23.0. This evening, it is just Michael and I. Michael, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing very well. So we're going to answer some some listener questions tonight. And the first one is, what is your estimated market cap of Bitcoin in 2030? So that's in 12 years. Bitcoin's been around for nine years. Ah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard, it's hard to say when hyperbitcoinization uh, hyper will happen exactly. I will say at some point, will market cap even make sense because it's hard to denominate something in its own thing. I, I find the concept of market cap a little weird too, because like, you know, setting aside like, oh, okay, how many coins are lost or whatever. To me, it's like, I, I find the concept of price to make more sense of like, what is the marginal buyer and seller going to buy and sell it for? Because it's not like the market cap, you know, is, hey, if everyone went and sold their Bitcoins tomorrow, here's how many dollars they would get. Like, no, the, it would collapse to zero and like very few people would actually get the marginal price by which you're multiplying the entire stock of Bitcoin. Yes. And I think uh, with this whole, the whole dominance thing really showed um, a lot of the issues with that because market cap is something that can be easily manipulated as is price for that matter. But you just issue something and make up a price for it. And you can say that you have a, you know, a multi-million dollar ICO. I, I think that the, the substance of the question is like, how much upside is there left for Bitcoin? A lot. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the other, like in my mind, it's like, how much upside do you need? Like, do, do you really, is it a make or break situation, whether it's 10x or 15x? And now, granted, actually, that that 10x is not that big over uh, 12 years. But the, the point still stands of like a traditional financial investment today. Like, I don't know what the 10-year uh, bond is yielding, but it's probably like 3%. And, you know, stocks on average, it's going to be like 8%. And do you think that Bitcoin's going to outperform those percentages? Uh, and then how, how much volatility can you handle is the other aspect of it. Like, are you actually going to be able to hold until 2030? Um, I think that there's a lot of people that say they could, but hey, if we go into like a prolonged bear market and, you know, we're, I don't know how many months into a bear market right now, let's, let's call it 10 months or whatever. You know, if this bear market lasts another twelve months, another year, are you are you still holding? And uh, does it even matter what the market cap is going to be in twenty thirty? Yeah, although I mean, the the, the bear market from uh, twenty fourteen through you know this this latest thing, it it felt like we were still in the bear market well into like twenty sixteen, even though it kept on rising. Yeah, I, I remember like even when the price was above twelve hundred. Uh, you know, we were like getting a little excited, but it it didn't feel like we were really in a bull market. I feel like until we hit two thousand dollars, that's when it got real to me that hey, this is an actual bull market that's that's happening. Yeah, and then you, only then did you look back and see like, wow, this thing has come a long way. So, uh, which all of this is to say that you know, uh, even if the bull market stops, you I mean, uh, the bear market stops, you might still feel like you're in a bear market. So. Once again, you know, how, how well can you hold? Um, you know, other nice thing, like if you do manage to hold, it is cool to think that you have just liquid cash um, that, that makes it, in my mind, uh, more attractive than a lot of uh, investment opportunities. Right. Um, all right. I, I'm satisfied with that answer. We don't, we don't know what the market cap <laughs> is going to be in 2030. Come on. Um, all right. Next question. Obviously, the most important question for maximalists worldwide Best cut of steak, ribeye. All right, ribeye. Yeah, fillet or strip. So you're saying ribeye. Well, okay. I think that 
I think that it should always, the question should always be, what's the second best cut of steak? Because I don't know that there's very much controversy on the ribeye. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll say the second best one is T-Bone or Porterhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And then the other question is like, cooked how? Um, and personally, I like ribeye roasts a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I tend to eat my uh, my steaks very, very rare, yeah. um, if not raw. So uh, although like a good, a good prime rib is fantastic. Yeah, excellent. All right. I don't want the uh, vegetarians to tune out just yet. So we'll move on to the next question. The next question is, what is your favorite non-animal based food or drink? And I'm not making that up. That's that's an actual question <laughs> that was sent to us by uh, Libertarian Mike at Libertarian Mike. Oh, and the previous question was from at Redbeard, but instead of an A, it's a four. I, I think that you know it's a you know it's someone who like isn't concerned about building a social media following when their Twitter handle is impossible to like. You have to like describe their Twitter Twitter handle. You you don't like say it. Yeah, I've I've interacted with him there. He's a nice guy. Okay, awesome. And he does indeed have a, a great red beard. Really? Okay. So yeah. I guess I guess red beard wasn't available, so he had to like change one of the letters. Yeah, someone. I, I guess it is a popular brand. It's a pretty saturated market of yeah. great red beards out there. Um, as far as uh, favorite non-animal based food or drink, well, I guess uh, uh, you know blood doesn't count there because it's animal based. I've never actually drank blood, but. Um, I mean, water. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of yeah, and I, I like I like seltzers. I like uh, um, the, uh, but no, let's be real here. Like my favorite non-animal based food. Well, so that's weird because like I love ice cream, but that has like I'm not eating vegan ice cream. Like that has animal stuff in it, right? So it's it's got dairy. Uh, although we can debate whether dairy is carnivore or not, uh, you know, as um, I would say, I mean, I, I don't see it as much of a debate so much as whether or not it's optimal to be consuming. Right. But it's animal based regardless. Um, so in terms of non-animal based, and then we got to eliminate water. Okay. That's too much of a cough out. I think that, oh man, that's hard. I guess like beer or wine. I like wine a lot. I haven't had alcohol in years. Uh, I don't even remember what non-animal foods taste like. All right. We'll move on to the next question then. So we're not going to get... Well, we got our answer out of Michael. It's water. Uh, what is your favorite slash preferred programming language? And I think that we should we should make those two distinct, right? Your, your favorite versus your preferred. Because I do think that those are different optimizations. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Um, for me, I'm mostly in the web dev world. Um, so I've, I've conformed to that in all regards. And so I'm, I'm mostly in the Python and JavaScript world. Um, and given the right context, I actually happen to really like JavaScript for whatever reason, you know, it's very handy when you're making, you know, nice front ends. There's not really much else you can use. So is it both your favorite and your preferred? Uh, I would say like Python is usually my go-to, um, but I'm also, like I said, I'm working usually in a, a web development uh, environment, so uh, not not as much systems programming and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I'd say my my favorite is it's a tie between TypeScript with Angular on the front end and C Sharp 
in Excel for Excel plugins. That's my favorite. Now my preferred is Python because both Python is like, it's so flexible. You can do so many different things with it. Um, and it's just, to me, it's like a Swiss army knife. Whereas like TypeScript, you know, that's going to be front end and then, uh, C sharp, it's going to be on, on windows. Right. I mean, if we're talking angular, I'm, I'm a big fan of react. Um, and I've, I've built a lot of uh, cool stuff in react and I highly recommend it to any, um, front end people. I can't stand angular. <laughs> it's just, I think that it's just, I, I learned angular first and then I never even learned react. So I think that if I was exposed to react, maybe I would convert. When moon is the next question. Depends on your time preference. Uh, how soon that is. Depends on your time preference. Like people are debating, you know, are we at the bottom of the bear market? Oh, this gives me a good opportunity to bring up. Uh, did you see the latest post from our good friend, Fred Wilson at AVC? No, I have not visited that blog uh, for a long time to uh, help my sanity, but yeah, no, that's, this one was a gem. Uh, basically the, the title is capitulation question mark. And he starts off his, his blog post. It's very short. So I'll just go ahead and read it. One of the things, one of the things I have disliked the most about the crypto sector is the idea that people should quote hodl or quote, hold on for dear life. So, I mean, first, let's. I, I think that with every one of these sentences, we could probably dissect them word by word. But right away, we know that he is not well versed in that very crypto sector that he claims uh, to be. Well, you're starting off with, with the end of the sentence, but really, I think we can start <laughs> with the beginning of the sentence. One of the things I have disliked the most. So like, there's a good list of things that Fred Wilson does not like about the crypto sector. He should make the full list. And that's fair. Like I got, I've got my own list. Everyone's got their list of naughties. How do we get him drunk? So he puts it out as like one giant tweet storm for us to deconstruct. Uh, Yeah. A a 100 uh, tweet long. And then, and then he gets bullied off of Twitter. (laughs) Look at me. I'm Fred Wilson. Um, And so then the next thing that I think we could pick on is, is the crypto sector. (laughs) There's no, there's no crypto sector. It's Bitcoin. Yeah, it's Bitcoin. And then there's an assortment of scams (laughs) that are trying to ride on the tailcoats of Bitcoin, but there's no crypto sector. Uh, And then is the idea that people should hodl. So they're like, you know, let's, you know, the, the idea that people should, should hold, um, I think that that's like uncontroversial throughout the investment world. People are encouraged to not actively trade and to not try to time the market because if you're investing for the long term, you you should be not doing that. Like you're you're going to incur trading costs, and generally speaking, uh, your emotions are going to get the better of you, and you're not going to be buying and selling at the right times. Uh, and then the last thing is what what, what you you're talking right, about. which is and I'll, I'll let you uh, explain that. Well, one. yeah, you know, any everyone in you know our our you know nice Bitcoin echo chamber, and most people you know within the the sort of uh, Bitcoin enthusiast space has uh, given given they've been around for a while. I, I can imagine there's people from 2017 who um, aren't aware of this, but there is a 
a Bitcoin talk post, a very famous one. I actually remember the day it came out and it was hilarious. And the guy just misspelled hold because he was drunk and like things, things were going bad. And he was saying, oh, I'm in a hodl. And I know I just made a spelling mistake, but I don't even care. We're going for this. And I, yeah, I think it's, that's just like one of those things. It's like, it's spelling Bitcoin with a capital C. It's just very telling that you aren't actually in the know. Um, and considering Fred Wilson has been in the space since, um, what, like 2013, 2014, it's very disheartening to see that he doesn't even knew, know sort of basic lore. Yeah, I, I, I agree that that is disappointing. Um, and so that's kind of like, I think it's called a backronym where you impute an acronym onto something that's not an acronym. But anyway, we'll continue with the next sentence now that we're... Either way, it's a, it's a stale meme. Yeah. All right. The next sentence reads, I have many times here at AVC that one should take... Oh, I have written many times here at AVC that one should take profits when they are available and diversify an investment portfolio. I don't know like what it like when they are available like like when they exist like so the the problem I have with this is like okay so does that mean that you you would start diversifying when it hit $2000 like assuming that you bought the previous top right i mean i remember i you know i don't want to go into too many details on a on a you know this uh, public public broadcast but i i purchased at an amount during the bull run i purchased purchased an amount of bitcoin and it was it was actually like a sort of stoic exercise to myself of you know i believe in this thing and we're just going to go for it um even though it seemed absurdly high um that price has never been reached again so had i had i like diversified would that have been a good idea and also, like, what does it actually mean to diversify an investment portfolio? Uh, hopefully, in this case, he's actually meaning diversify outside of crypto rather than uh, buying all of the other um, various shitcoin scams that he's promoted over the years. Yeah. Anyway, I won't dwell on that too much. Uh, the The idea that an investor should hold no matter what has always seemed ridiculous to me. So I think that's just like a straw man, right? Like, no, no one has ever said that. You should hold on to Bitcoin no matter what. Um, if if there was like an actual serious problem with Bitcoin, then, well, frankly, like good luck selling it, right? Because who's who's going to be on the other side of that trade? But also there are reasons for uh, dishodling and uh, passing the baton on to the next generation of holders. Uh, yeah, for instance, if, you know, I've, I've said for a while now, like if all you had wanted was a Lambo and you can get your Lambo now, go get your Lambo. That was the purpose of holding money in the first place. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, we've been saying for a long time that it's important to actually do some financial planning um, because you're not going to be a good hodler in the first place if you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to be making um, emotional decisions. Um, so if you found yourself, you know, my, my sort of, you know, rule of thumb, so to speak, is if you have trouble sleeping at night because of your Bitcoin position, you should probably dishodle a little bit because it probably means you have too much. You shouldn't be losing sleep over what you are holding. So yeah, like even us, we're <laughs> we're, we're the reason the, the term Bitcoin maximalist exists, but we understand that, um, you know, as, as monetary maximalists, it's not necessarily like us that need to be um, reaping all the gains in the sense that 
we shouldn't be destroying ourselves just for the purposes of getting more bitcoins there's there's more to this world than than that for sure as as much as i hate to admit it it's true Keynes was right we do have to eat yeah i i do agree with him that like it, it's ridiculous to hold no matter what if you're holding trash right so uh if if he really is applying this to the crypto sector i agree that if if you right now are holding ethereum it is ridiculous to hold it no matter what uh, when the underlying premise of Ethereum being a world computer is getting debunked before our eyes. Yeah. Fr- friends don't let friends become pink wojacks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These bags are getting heavy. Now, the crypto markets are in the eighth month of a long and painful bear market. I, I don't know. It's hard to describe it. It's painful. It's been a walk in, a, in the park for me. It's actually been quite fun. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, and then on top of that, I guess it's confounded by the fact that like I have a, a six, six month old son now. And like, that's just been pure joy over the past six months. But um, yeah, I it's, it's also it actually is not as deep of a bear market if you look at it side by side with 2014. Uh, so the like crash did not go as low. And I think that speaks to the the increased liquidity of Bitcoin. I think that the the community is also much more um, aligned during this bear market. So we're all having fun together as opposed to um, the last bear market. There was so much uh, antagonism because there are a lot of, you know, very, very contentious ideas about um, scaling going around. Um, now that there's been the escape valve and all of that, uh, the, the release valve, you know, all of us, I think, at least in my echo chamber, you know, everyone is in a very positive mood and a very forward-looking mood, uh, uh, mood about, you know, what is it that we can build? What are the things we can do? And in fact, I, I I sense that more people are actually building things now. Yeah, I mean, whether it's Lightning Network or BTC Pay Server, uh, I don't know if long and painful. I guess, I mean, it, it, Fred's just like an investor on the sidelines. So like it might be more painful for him than if he was actually like involved in the community or whatever. Um, and we are seeing starting to see some signs of capitulation, particularly in the assets that went up the most last year. So I think he's referring to Ethereum there. Um, because that went up the most and it's really, it's, and there it's like, okay, could you really apply HODL to anything that's not Bitcoin? I think Nick Carter made the point that like, it's, it's ridiculous for anyone to be applying because that meme, first of all, I mean, obviously it, it emerged from Bitcoin, but I think that the, the, the psychological element emerged from Bitcoin's price history, uh, and, other coins don't necessarily share that same price history over the same number of years. I mean, none of them do, right? If we talk about like how, you know, nine years. That being said, I'm trying to remember when, when it was that that post came out. Was it 2013? Oh, I have it open here. Uh, yeah. December 18th, 2000. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there was already uh, a couple of years of price action and, and quite intense price action at that. Um, that was, there, there had already been, I guess, like three bubbles at that point, and so it was like, yeah, let's like we're gonna we're gonna hold through this one, just like you know we saw it, we saw it do this in 2011, we saw it do it in early 2013, we see it happening now, we're gonna do it. And all right, so the next sentence is whether this is the long-awaited capitulation of the huddle crowd or not. I can't say. 
And, and my problem with that is that like the huddle crowd is a very diverse set of, of people. Um, so like, even if you look within Bitcoin, it's kind of absurd to suggest that like there is an investor base that is homogenous and they're the HODL crowd. If if the HODL crowd were to capitulate, Bitcoin goes to zero. Like, let's be clear. there's It's not like it would uh, mm-hmm. just go down to like 5,000. Yeah, I would actually, I'd be worried if there is like a monolith of investors that that's terrible for sort of decentralization purposes in the sense of, you know, you, you want a variety of, of, of tribes kind of, uh, you know, battling it out. Yeah. And, and everyone has like a different time preference. Everyone has a different marginal propensity to hold. Everyone has a different like entry price. So, you know, it might be easier for you someone to hold if their entry price is like five cents versus $5 versus $50 versus $18,000. Right. Um, and it affects the psychology. I, yeah, I mean, there, it, it comes back to that whole, like, uh, you know, the, the meme of you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. And I definitely remember when, when Bitcoin was on the way up, I, there were many people who they were sold by what I was saying about Bitcoin. But it was, yeah, that entry price just seemed way too high. So I was like, oh, well, I'll wait until it comes back down to whatever. Um, and of course, it never came back down to that price. But that's another story. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, let's finish up this post here. But capitulation would be a good thing for the crypto markets. I, I, I like that. That's kind of that's the that's the Bitcoin meme as well. Like this is good for Bitcoin. Uh, yes, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I would actually, I guess, kind of be happy that if people would stop holding on to things that aren't Bitcoin. The the problem is that uh, Fred's reasoning for why this would be a good thing is is kind of really weird. Releasing assets into the market that until now have been locked up by long-term holders. <laughs> what is he talking about? Um, what does that even mean? Well, look, you've had fun with Bitcoin. It's time for others to get a chance to have fun with Bitcoin. And you you hodling um, is keeping other people from being able to enjoy Bitcoins. Obviously. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. I, I wonder. I wonder to what extent this uh, extends from the sort of uh, the the common misunderstanding of of money, where um, the idea that that withholding money from the market somehow uh, keeps others like it, it, it's first of all like not a productive act, and like it it sort of harms other people by not you know getting the the velocity going. Yeah, you're you're hoarding. And uh, you're you're withholding wealth essentially because you're you're not. Uh, I think that uh, Keynesians call it like the savings trap or something like that. Where like, oh, you know, instead of investing or consuming, you're saving, and that is harming the economy. So maybe maybe Fred's talking like his inner Keynesian thing. I don't know. It just doesn't. I like. I don't know that. I think that even a Keynesian reading that would be like what is he saying? Like that doesn't have like economic substance to it. It just sounds like he wanted to figure out a reason for why it was good for the crypto markets other than uh, it's undermining a bunch of scams and like getting bad people out. Um, Anyway. All right. Until then, it is hard to get excited about buying anything in crypto. And I would contrast that to like Spencer Bogart was saying like, Look, uh, this is a bear market. Like things are going down. Things might go down more, but Bitcoin is attractive at these levels. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this is just audio, so people couldn't see me just uh, face palming as hard <laughs> as, as hard as I just did. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm more excited about Bitcoin now than I've ever been. I always say that, and it's always true. Um, but that very fact, you know, negates uh, what he's saying. Um, and I think many other people think that too. And I'm also noticing like a trend towards Bitcoin maximalism brewing, yeah. meaning that more people are getting excited about certain aspects of Bitcoin that they undervalued or underappreciated in the past. For sure. I've, I've noticed that as well. And then the other thing too, is that like, if you're writing a blog post titled capitulation question mark, like consider buying the dip, right? Shouldn't you at least buy a, a little bit? And like, even though you think it might go lower, like it's time to start accumulating. I don't know. Um, it seems like not being excited about buying anything is is the opposite of what Warren Buffett advocates for of like, hey, when there's blood in the streets, you know, go out and, and load up. Because to me, it's like, you should be writing, I'm not excited about buying anything in crypto in December. When it, you know, like we're at the top of the market. Like that's when you say like, I'm not excited about things. And all of you who are very excited about it, you're wrong. Right, it's like we've, we've over-invested in it. So I just, I, I, I question uh, Fred's reasoning on this. But anyway, I don't want to pick on him too much. He's, he's done some good things for Bitcoin as well. Uh, so that was a long form answer of when moon. Uh, ask Fred Wilson. <laughs> he doesn't seem to think that it's anytime soon. All right. Next question. I strongly agree with Bitcoin maximalism, mostly following the podcast and Twitter accounts. However, I, I think a valid question is, what if we're wrong? How can Bitcoin fail? And what will happen if it fails? And that's from Hoddle Hanger. Yeah, Hoddle Hanger. Uh, well, this is when the Bitcoin nuns start slapping him with a uh, ruler. Yeah, how, how dare you question the faith? For, for questioning yeah. the faith. <laughs> uh, uh, what if we're wrong? Uh, well... If we're wrong, I had a lot of fun, so I'm not going to. And like, it was a great try. I think this was uh, one of the best attempts at um, carving out a substantial portion of uh, freedom and civilization in this uh, these trying times. So yeah, if we're wrong, I had fun, um, and uh, I don't regret anything. Yeah, and that's the thing too is that like. There, there are people throughout history, you can go open up the history books, who either like died for nothing in, in, in the sense that like they were in a battle. And to me, it's like, all right, well, we're, we're, we're ahead of that. We're not like we're not going to die for Bitcoin, uh, I hope. And, you know, the only person who's died for Bitcoin so far is Hal Finney. And we might still revive him. So that's not out of the question either. Yeah, it's very true. I, I what came to mind was the uh, you know those old videos and stuff or, or pictures of just like all the the weird flying machines that people made and they would all fail. Yeah, yeah, it's it's part of it's part of the the human uh, experience is to experiment with things and if they fail, that's okay. Now, obviously, we always want them to succeed, right? That's why we're doing it. Right, right. Um, but these people who fail, like even, you know, you know, things can also just be early for their time. So even if Bitcoin were to fail, it could be just that uh, 
there was some crucial ingredient missing and we just, you know, turned the ratchet a little farther on human knowledge about this space. Like, you know, DigiCash was a big step forward, but then we, we learned that you, you need a decentralized monetary base um, or else you just get shut down uh, or go out of business or whatever. And Bitcoin was that ratchet. Uh, now, I think Bitcoin, as far as I can tell, has solved some fundamental things. And so I don't really, I don't stay up at night worrying about, you know, whether or not something's going to uh, cause Bitcoin to fail or if there's, you know, some other crucial component needed. But if this is the case, like, I I, I don't think it was all for naught because the people in the future will have learned from this experience. And if, if I could have helped give that to the world in my my small part i'm i'm very happy to have done so and we get cool hats out of it too great hats. that's the other thing and frankly like i'm more concerned about other things failing like the electricity grid or the internet yeah in which case no money matters i I know the gold bugs like to uh you know give you a smug face and tell you oh yeah what about emps and i just i i i don't think that a Gold is going to be more useful than nothing in a survival scenario. Uh, but when you, I don't, I, I mean, when was the last time, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to comprehend a sort of uh, demonetized world. Um, it, it, it scares me. It horrifies me. Um, I'm just seeing, you know, what's happening in, in Venezuela and stuff. Like, I don't know. It, it just seems like the sort of the least of our problems is like whether or not I happen to have a gold coin. Yep. So the next question is, what are good reasons for Bitcoin's monetary policy to have given most of the 21 million Bitcoins to the very early adopters? Why didn't Satoshi make the slope of the monetary policy a bit more flat in order to reduce the future wealth distribution inequality? Do you think he might have underestimated the time it would take for Bitcoin to become mainstream? This guy sounds like a socialist. <laughs> well, you know, uh, he even Satoshi even has a post somewhere where he he is talking about the sort of uh, perceived inequality of this, and he's like, "Well, I'm 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 not a socialist, so or I don't want to be thinking like a socialist." I don't remember his exact words, but he he makes that exact reference. And um, the thing about this question to me is that. Um, you know, you, you can argue that perhaps there's there's a way that you could have optimized things the right way. But the thing is, is one, we really don't know what the perfect distribution method would be. And no matter what distribution you come up with, someone's going to be upset. So I don't think that you can actually please everyone. So uh, going down that path of, of worrying about perfect equality in terms of the distribution of money at, uh, at the expense of like actually just getting this thing out um, seems a bit dangerous. Yeah, I, I kind of fall back on like a coast theorem approach to it, which is like, just get the coins out there and it'll sort itself out. You know, if there are people who have a long term vision for Bitcoin and think it's going to succeed in the long term and like, they're going to acquire Bitcoins before you are regardless of the distribution. And then the other thing too, in my mind is, so people say, oh, Satoshi essentially pre-mined because he got all these coins, uh, you know, before everyone else. And my, my rebuttal to that is that Satoshi 
did not get seniorage in the sense that the electricity he consumed to mine those Bitcoins was worth more than the Bitcoins themselves. They were worth zero point zero 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 dollars like without without any end to those zeros when he was mining those uh until you know much later when they actually did start getting a market price so in my mind like it's not like satoshi printed money uh he actually you know created money at a loss and so did a lot of people Mm -hmm. mining in those early days uh and then the other thing too is that like every single day that went by that they did not dump their coins is one more day where I think that they earned those coins and they earned the value that accrues to those coins. Absolutely. Yeah. I, so I think uh, I always refer back to this. Uh, Oleg Andreev put it best in a tweet many years ago when he said, uh, Bitcoin is a dump and pump scheme because you have to, yeah, all Satoshi did was put this out. It had a price of zero. And the only reason that it has anything today is because it's attracted people to it um, and actually created value in people's lives. Um, and uh, Saifedean talks a lot about or he, he uses the, the analogy of oil and how people used to just have like oil on their land and they would actually want to get rid of it. You know, it was sort of, uh, it, was, it was a nuisance to have that oil until some brave soul, you know, figured out what this thing could be used for. And so likewise, you know, this thing means nothing until people start to value it. So the people who went through that process that you were describing of like, holding it just one more day of holding those people are taking on extreme risks um, and opportunity costs for that. So it, it's very well-deserved. And uh, the, the coast theorem point is a very good one. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I haven't thought about that for a long time, you know, and this also goes back to our earlier statements on one of the other questions, how everyone has a different um, time horizon and a different entry point. And so it'll work itself out. Like someone might be hodling a lot today, but as soon as someone comes comes to them with the right thing, you know, they'll sell immediately and it'll it'll go, you know, the, the supply available on the market to purchase will will go up. And um, if you feel left out or feel like you have an unequal share of the Bitcoin pie, it'll be more available for you to uh, to to grab. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip a, a few questions because I see one here that I find interesting. Um and this is from uh, at Christian Boyle on Twitter. Uh, I'm a fan of his, he's a fan of ours. What do you think would happen if a run on exchanges were to occur? What sort of event might prompt it? Would it need to happen on the Bitcoin chain or could an event on another proof of work chain cause enough panic to induce it? So a run on exchanges is only going to happen if people believe that an exchange is insolvent and thus they need to get their coins out ASAP. And so obviously, like in the case of Mt. Gox, you know, whether it was hacked by an outside person or it was like an inside job, same same principle. So if, for example, we were to find out the Coinbase got hacked and they're out, there are billions of dollars worth of digital assets that would conceivably cause a run on and it might actually have a spillover effect where people like wake up to the fact that, oh, shit, maybe I should not be holding uh, my coins on Bitstamp because Coinbase just got hacked. 
So it, it could have some kind of um, knock-on effect. Uh, but I, I don't see any other kind of event prompting it. Actually, no, sorry, I take that back. And this is kind of like getting hacked. But if a government were to go in and like seize the assets of an exchange, that might get people thinking about uh, how they're actually holding their private keys. Yeah, an interesting question on that is, do you think how, how do you think that would affect the price if uh, the government were to to seize the assets? Would it would it go down because people would be afraid of government crackdown? Uh, would it go down just because market reactions? Or is there a chance that there would also be a counter effect at play as well, which is that would prove Bitcoin's necessity. I, I think that on net, it would go down because of the reduction in liquidity. But I definitely agree with you that that would be like a really good illustration of why you should not only own Bitcoins, but you know have your own private keys and all of that. All right, good question. All right, uh, next question. What is more important to the thriving of the human race a return of sound money or a return of proper human nutrition, parentheses, carnivory? Um, this is a trick question because they're one and the same. Yeah, they're, they're highly interrelated. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the purpose of money is to help uh, coordination uh, between people. And uh, having a sound money, you know, increases our time horizon and uh, forward thinking. And with that, we're going to treat our capital with better respect because we want to build more wealth out of it for future profits. And part of that capital is our bodies. So I'd imagine that in a sound money economy, more people would be incentivized to actually take care of their bodily capital. And thus they would be seeking out sources of nutrition that, that best allow for that. Let's go on to the next question. Hi, a great fan of yours. Uh, my query I like that word query. It makes me think of SQL. It's cool. Um, was how a monetary system like that of Bitcoin tackle the deadlock of a deflationary spiral once the so-called dilution, parentheses, inflation by block rewards dries up? Wouldn't every person just prefer hoarding, quote unquote, Bitcoin in intuition, which is misspelled, but that's okay, that its value with yeah okay uh would appreciate tomorrow wouldn't the economy come to a halt yes the economy would come to a halt we would all starve um all right so we answered that question <laughs> uh no i mean more seriously like uh, i th this gets brought up all the time of uh kind of the, the deflation argument and really um i think that it reveals how how much brain damage the Keynesian establishment has done to our our generation and past generations. Uh, but like, you, there's there's just such obvious counterexamples like the computer industry, where you see massive deflation, but people still buy computers. Well, I think the 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 most important point uh, to come away with is simply the fact that you can't have a time preference of zero. You you've physically can't as a human. Um, and so because of that, um, at any moment, you're still going to prefer some present good over a future good the question is just like what? So at that point, yeah, you know, maybe you'll have people who uh, will hoard out all that money, but they still need to eat. 
Um, they still need shelter. They still need all of these basic human necessities. Um, and someone has to provide it to them. Um, so if you can be the one who can uh, sell that to them, then you can, you can profit off it. Uh, but even in that case, you know, if people are doing that, it's because that's where their values are. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Right. Yeah, we should respect that. Um, okay, so can you touch on the practical differences between a deflationary coin with fixed versus inflatable supply? I mean, this seems like a self-evident question, right? Uh, in that a... <laughs> Well, okay, so it's kind of weird to call it a deflationary coin because, like, deflation, you know, we've got that that classic dichotomy between um, mainstream Keynesians who are like, oh, deflation is a decrease or uh, an increase in the purchasing power of a money. You know, it's about, like, consumer prices. Um, whereas Austrians would argue that the correct definition of deflation is a decrease in the money supply. Um and none of the none of none of the coins except Frycoin, right, uh, have a decrease in the money supply. Um, now, in terms of fixed versus inflatable, like inflatable implies that it can be inflated, and it's not it's not just that it has a constant inflation rate; it's just that it it can be changed. Right, right. I think, but but let's give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he was meaning more just inflationary in general, meaning perhaps like a a two percent inflation rate for all time. Yeah. So I I don't know that there would be a practical difference in like strictly monetary economics terms, but I think that in psychological terms, it's really important to have a a fixed uh, twenty one million. Uh, yes, absolutely. That that shelling point is crucial, um, just because you know the the difference when it's when it's fixed, the meme is strong. It's twenty one million, um, and everything else is seen as wrong. But if you open Pandora's box and you say, okay, well, let's do one percent. Um, once you've done that, well, that's a completely arbitrary number, just as zero was for that matter. But it's but it it sort of reveals the arbitrariness, uh, so to speak, and opens up a political attack vector where, well, where, well, if we did 1%, why not 1.1%? Why not 2%? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so now uh, people are fighting over that. Whereas when you have the strong meme of 21 million, when people come into Bitcoin, they know what they're getting into. Um, and they, they know that they're not going to be able to change that. I do disagree on the uh, monetary effects um, portion, but only in the context of where there's competing currencies. So if just if, if you already have the one dominant currency and somehow like it's impossible to create another currency, then yes, like having having a certain inflation rate for all time, uh, because there's no unpredictability of the mon monetary uh, policy and supply, uh, which causes you know, uh, you know, problems with the interest rate, business cycles, all of that, all of that good stuff that we learned from the Austrians. Um, because we don't have that unpredictability, uh, it'd be effectively the same. Um, it'd be you'd, you'd be paying a small tax, so to speak, but you'd be able to price everything into your economic actions and still be able to do long-term economic calculation. However, if you have a competing, if you have that two percent coin. 
and then a um, 0% coin comes out, um, that is, uh, you know, I can imagine ways in which the 0% could fail, just, you know, it fails to get the, the right traction for, for some reason. But it is sort of uh, strictly superior in terms of if it takes off, having 0% means that that compounded tax, so to speak, is not taken away from you. And so you'd want to hold that rather than the 2% one. Yeah. And there's there's an ongoing debate about the um, you know transaction fees after we hit the 21 million limit and then how sustainable or how secure is the chain? Like, do we have enough hash rate? But I don't know if we want to get into that on this episode. That's kind of a long topic. Um, okay. How would you describe Bitcoin to a seven-year-old? Oh, and this is, this is from Bill. Does Bill have a seven-year-old? I, maybe I, I thought he was older. I would assume maybe like a, a grandson or granddaughter. Oh, okay. Uh, first of all, hey, Bill. Big fan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From Australia. Yes, Bill Burden, uh, BTC, BTC Seminar. Yeah. So, yeah, Michael, do you have some ideas on how to explain Bitcoin to a seven-year-old? I've never explained it to a seven-year-old, so I don't even know like what would vibe with them. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting question. I think, I think it would be interesting. This is me spitballing. I think it would be interesting to focus on the sound money aspect in terms of uh, you, you know describing the problems in, of inflation and presenting uh, Bitcoin as like, hey, hey, here's this digital app you can download that handles that. Um, I, I think mining and stuff like that might be a little difficult to explain. Uh, but the the practical aspects of, of why it's better money, I think, would be rel- readily um, accessible, um, explained the right way. I remember uh, an old article, I think it was by uh, Jeffrey Tucker, um, talking about post-Halloween trick-or-treat and like watching his kids uh, and their friends with the candy and watching a sort of almost like uh, money emerge within them trading um, uh, the candies because there was a candy that no one actually wanted, but they knew that like other people would value it enough so they could get their hands on the candy they did want. So it was effectively becoming a, a medium of exchange and stuff like that. I think if you you were able to come up with a little like you know uh, inflation stuff uh, and sound money principles with you know just like well I I, I would recommend not using candy uh for for nutrition reasons but but use these types of things like there's the great you know ron swanson clip where he's teaching the little girl about taxation by eating half her sandwich yeah no that's i think that's a good approach that's a good approach i'll I'll see i i well i imagine i'm going to start explaining bitcoin to my son like before he reaches seven so um all right next question why do you think so many Austrian libertarians are stuck in the crypto Keynesian mindset that spending on chain is needed for adoption? I, I think that this, my answer is twofold to this. And I, I think we're going to end on, on this question because I think this is the most inflammatory <laughs> question one can ask. 
Me. I don't know about you. Like, is there a, another question that would be more inflammatory than this one? Uh, no, it's pretty bad. Um, although I do, I do want to sit here and try to try to steal man with with you if possible. Okay, can I? But can I troll and like straw man for a second? Yes, absolutely. All right. Yeah, one hundred percent. First of all, they're trying to scam you out of your bitcoins. <laughs> So they're going to tell you, hey, look, you need to spend your coins at my online store. And like, I'm not immune from that. Okay. And once we have an online store set up, which, hey, you get a little sneak peek behind the scenes here. We're, we're working on a, creating an online store. Believe me, I'm going to change my tune on <laughs> crypto Keynesianism. <laughs> All right. I will be advocating for everyone to be spending their Bitcoins at our store specifically. But remember these words that we're telling you regardless. Don't don't listen to our future selves, except totally listen to our future selves. Yeah, uh, it, it reminds me of another uh, Curve Your Enthusiasm episode where the lady tells Larry, don't let me eat the dessert. <laughs> even the, even if I tell you I wanna have dessert, you know, don't, don't let me have it. And they end up like wrestling on the floor as he's trying to prevent <laughs> her from having dessert. Um, Anyway, uh, the other the other trolley answer I have to this uh, specifically has to do with like why why do they want cheap fees on on for on chain transactions? And I think is that like you well the trolley answer is like they're they're cheap and they want things for free. Um, but I think that like underlying that is they downloaded this software for free. And it's open source, and it doesn't really make sense that you would have to pay for sending a transaction. Like at, at first glance, it's like, wait, why? Like when I open, you know, any other open source software, I don't expect to pay for usage of it. Um, and that was kind of my first reaction until I found out that the transaction fee goes to these miners. And like the block ward is getting phased out, so like we got to think about that long term. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was uh, actually I was about to say it was a strategic mistake to be talking about that a long time ago. At the same time, perhaps like that sort of naive understanding of the system actually did help get a lot of people. And I it, it would be hard to do the counterfactuals on that, but. It is unfortunate that early on there was such a focus on low transaction, basically free transactions, um, that that was seen as a uh, indefinite value to the system rather than something you can get on in on in 2012 and 2013 and before. Um, as far as steel manning it, I get the sense sometimes when I want to be generous. Uh, and take take these people seriously. Um, that what they're what they're really trying to say is not necessarily that you should actually be spending, but that if there is not you know for instance adequate block space, um, and such like that, then you can't spend. Right, right. Uh, or uh, projecting out into the future, like that you won't be able to spend. And the other steel man I would have for it, which I think is like, it's it's actually a reasonable argument of how many of us got into Bitcoin because like we received some, you know, in a transaction and we were like, whoa, how, you know, how did that happen? Like, how'd that work? So it's like, it's like the drug dealer who gives you a free line of cocaine. 
you know, maybe we should be doing. And I remember actually saying that, like when I first got into Bitcoin, that like, yeah, definitely hold Bitcoins, but like try to like send some or ha- give some away to like your family or friends and, you know, get them interested in it. Right. And I actually think to, to some extent that was that was uh, totally true. I think at the time, you know, I, I, I don't regret it. I remember, you know, for instance, uh, you know, blowing someone's mind because I was sending them Bitcoins in the middle of the desert in Israel, you know, like completely yeah. away from everything. Um, and just like, you know, even there, because, you know, me, me and my friend, uh, shout out to Ed, uh, you know, we were both uh, traveling there and uh, we were both hardcore Bitcoiners and like even as far away from our, our normal lives, we were there to like give someone Bitcoins to be like, hey, check out this thing. And so it was like it was, it was a powerful moment. Um, so in that time period, it made sense. But, you know, as time goes on, you, you learn more about the system. Um, the system grows and you grow with it and uh, you find new strategies for um incentivizing adoption and uh i i don't think that's uh as, as useful anymore okay i think that we we've got a lot of great content here so we'll wrap up today's episode so we're gonna we're gonna try to do this weekly now and uh try to have episodes out more regularly um both just michael and i and also with a guest uh so that people stop complaining on Twitter about not having noted episodes uh, and start enjoying uh, he- hearing our banter. Um, and if you have feedback on the show, you have some suggestions on how we can improve the show, definitely come come at us. Uh, I think both of our DMs are open. And uh, you can also email us. I think our email addresses are public. Or you could send us mail at, no, uh, we, we don't have, a, yeah, Just the noted yeah. podcast studios. Berate us publicly. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, 1060 West Addison. Yeah. Well, call us out in your podcast. So if you're dissatisfied with the quality of this podcast, start your own podcast and you can rant about our podcast. Yeah, that would actually be great. It would let us uh, start like a real beef yeah, I feel like we got to start like a feud with like Stefan Lavera. Uh, we could start a feud with him over something. We got to figure out what what kind of uh, feud we can start. Yeah, yeah. It's like East Hemisphere versus West Hemisphere. You know, Tupac versus Biggie. No, it's 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 even worse than that. It's a North Hemisphere versus South Hemisphere. Oh, true. Yeah, true. We're just like total total opposites. Um, and it's also like we've been we've been friends for so long, so there needs to be that drama. Yeah, I I I remember interacting with him back in 2013 on on Twitter on crypto Twitter. Uh, anyway, but yeah, no, I actually I, I do like how many awesome podcasts are coming out from all different angles, um, and it really is the uh, podcasting golden age for Bitcoin. The more content we have out there, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, should also note if, uh, you have additional questions that you want us to answer on the show, go to noted.org slash submit, and, uh, you can submit your questions and hopefully we'll be able to get around to them. There's so many. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that if you want to bribe us to answer your question, then you can send us Bitcoins. Uh, we're going to be setting up a, a BTC pay server instance for uh noted contributions for people who want to 
support the show uh, and and make sure that Michael and I are spending all of our time memeing and shilling Bitcoin. Has there been a situation in which you took something too personally? How do you avoid taking things personally? So the initial reaction is like, no, man, I don't take things too personally. You know, I keep. T-. But the actual fact is, yeah, I take things. I take everything personally, right? Like, I mean, I. If I do something bad, I am very personally, I don't like it at all. Mm. If I do something poorly, I don't like it at all. I take it very personally. If somebody gives me feedback, I, mm-hmm. I take it personally. This is like, it's an ego thing. It's a pure ego thing, right? And I, I, I just had to say this at a group I was talking to. Just because I say ego is bad all the time, ego is good too. Mm-hmm. Ego is what drives you. Ego is what makes you want to be number one. Yeah. Ego is what is brings you pride in your work and makes you work harder to give deliver good product and and be a good leader and a good employee and a good person right that's ego the problem comes when ego or taking things personally actually prevents you from listening to the critiques that you're being told that's that's the problem so for instance we'll take this little podcast right here it's got some critique on it the other day yeah, yeah. i got somebody somebody sent me a little critique and they said that I didn't explain, because we had Andy Stumpf on here, and Andy was kind of rattling off that his, his career in the teams. And as he was rattling off the career in the teams, he lost some people. Not a bunch, because it wasn't that complicated, but he lost some people. And, and for instance, he used an, an, an acronym, um, or an acronym LPO, which stands for Leading Petty Officer, which is the, which is the, Second senior enlisted person in a SEAL platoon and I didn't explain that when he said it so there's an example So when I heard this my first reaction is like oh, you don't know what LPO is cool. Go Google it <laughs> Go Google it. Why are you asking me? Yeah. Stop talk and then that was pretty much you know my my ego was mm. saying hey I can't believe this person. Doesn't yeah, how know. dare you how dare you and then I as I thought about it, I was like well You know I need to I need to make sure in the future that I'm more that I'm more aware of what guys are talking, especially when I'm sitting here talking to a, another SEAL mm-hmm. who we have a common language and we are talking about things in a very conversational mode. So we're not caring about anybody else. And that's sort of what the podcast is often is like we're not we're not talking to everyone that's listening at this moment. We're just kind of talking to ourselves or amongst ourselves. And so when he throws out this words, I need to be more aware of them. So mm-hmm. if I took it personally, I might not listen. If I actually listen I can do a better job so that's that's kind of it It, and basically that's the same with anybody when anybody receives any criticism of any kind Mm. they get they take it personally (laughs) and I think the thing is two things number one get over it so you can listen to what the criticism is and and also remember this this is kind of weird I think maybe I'm wrong what do you think the more angry and the more personally you take some criticism, the truer it actually is. Is that possible? Uh, when something really bothers you, it's probably something that really bothers you because you know it's true. Yeah. Like when somebody says something that just doesn't matter to me, it, it, it's, you know, I don't take it personally. I'm like, oh, yeah, they just think that. Don't worry about it. I'm yeah. not worried about it. But when somebody says something that I know is true, and they're pinging me on it. That's 
means I get even more, take it more personally yeah. and get more angry about it. And and then that should be an indicator. Hey, this is something you actually need to fix. Yeah, it actually has to do with insecurity more than anything. So it can there be it can be super true or it can be kind of true or you can just be questioning it whether or not it's true. If you're insecure about it, that's when it's going to affect. Because you can be like, yeah. there can be, okay, you know, let's say guys have a receding hairline and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't care about that at all. It's totally true, you know. And or let's say I do care about it. I don't like it, but I, I, I've known it for the last, I don't know, 20 years, whatever. And someone's like, hey, you know, your hairline's receding. Do people like, still oh, yeah. care about that? I don't. I don't think they do. No, I don't know. But I'm just saying, you yeah, know, okay. certain things. That's, um, and if you know about it or, you know, and you know it's true, you won't necessarily be bothered by it. But if you get someone who's like, it's starting to recede or it's early <laughs> on or it's like, dang. And they won't necessarily be. This is just an example, hypothetical, but they won't necessarily be concerned about the actual hairline receding. They're more concerned about, oh, do do I look older? Am I unattractive now? Or am I losing it now? Or something like that. That's what they're insecure about. So when someone points out some symptom of that insecurity, that's when they're like, well, you don't got to say that. Or, you know, they get all, oh, man, that goes for kind of anything. So maybe, I don't know, maybe someone's saying, hey, you didn't explain this enough. Maybe you're like, wait, what are you saying? Was that a junk episode kind of thing or, or something like, did I not, um, you know how you, you're good at explaining stuff and simplifying them or whatever. Maybe it was like a, a, an attack on oh, that or oh, something. Maybe it's a personal point of pride. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. I don't know, Yeah, but maybe. But that's typically what people get mad about. It's not necessarily if they know it's true or not. It's if they're insecure about it. Right, well, you wouldn't be insecure about something that wasn't true. Uh, no, but here's the thing. But sometimes you do. Because, you know, and you sometimes it's like a weird, like, mental, uh, like, problem. But, you know, girls, for example, I'm not saying all girls, but let's, I'm going to totally generalize right now. But, you know, the girl is like, hey, do I look fat in this? The girl's like in awesome shape or whatever. Uh. And you're like, uh, or, or, they always think they're fat. That, it's not true. That's you know? not the like, right response, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that, that little wishy-washy thing. That's not, that's yeah, not that's a good a response. That's a perfect example, yeah. though. You yeah. know what I mean? So yeah, it, that. it's like that kind of stuff. You know, people are just insecure about, about stuff sometimes. Oh, and even though the girl's in really good shape. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or yeah that's that's or, horrible. Or even guys, when especially like if they're into like their physique or something like that, mm-hmm. where, they, I don't know, they're at a party or so. I've heard guys like they go to parties and they'll do like dips or push-ups before they walk in. Yeah, because you, like you, so they're like more pumped. <laughs> I I swear. And is that why you were doing some push-ups? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. So like you, know, you were just a little insecure about what I just said. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you know they'll get that kind where they'll be like, oh, I'm. They'll think that oh, I'm not looking very cut up or something yeah, like yeah. that. You know, like that kind of stuff when yeah. it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a, a good point. And I think the bottom line is when we take things personally, yeah. I, I, I think it's actually not a negative thing yeah. because it means that you're there's probably something that you need to work on. Yeah. But I think what we need to watch out for is taking it personally and therefore being mad right. and either being mad at the person that told you, which the person probably could be out of line, you know, saying some stuff that's offensive. Yeah. But even if someone offends you, well, okay, well, let's fix it so you don't have that 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 weakness or that insecurity anymore. And so, just yeah. know what your red flags are. Know when you're taking something. Everybody takes stuff personally. Yeah, well, I, I'm, yeah. I'm like Mister Detachment, and I yeah. take stuff personally all the time. When yeah. somebody says something to me, I'm like, Oh, okay. Dang, what I, what I do to do better? Yeah, you do a good job of seeing the the big picture, though. You know, like because a lot of times, you know, when 
I don't know. I, I always think back to the, you know the the relation. Like okay, let's say let's say I'm at home. I'm mowing the lawn. I, I you know did all this these great housework chores. Whatever. Right. You know, dad comes home, mom comes home, and they're like, hey. I thought I told you to take out the trash. Meanwhile, everything else is spick and span. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm mad. You know, how dare you say that to me when I did this? Me, me, my thing, my thing. But at the same time, they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, so you do a good job of like, you'd be able to kind of recognize that. Even though you'd probably feel those same right, feelings, right, right. Yes. you won't, your default isn't, what about this? And fight back and, yep. and make the problem bigger. It's kind of like, you'll feel it. On the inside, and recognize the red flags yeah. of what's happening. And you go, and oh yeah, like, okay. cool. I, I got re- to remember to take out the trash because the truth is that's correct. That is you correct. do. It doesn't matter if you did the lawn or not. The trash was a thing, you know.